through 17, so that way we can stay in context. Amen? Amen. So you can follow along with me. I can clean my glasses. Don't ever get old. All right, here we go. From the Word of God, amen? amen? For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. For sin, now look at verse 14, shall not be master over you. You're not under the law, you're under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And I like how the King James says it. God forbid. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as a slave for obedience, you are a slave of the one whom you obey? <clears throat> either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So let's dig in. We're going to review a little bit of what we did on our last time together. So let's look at slide two and three. For sin shall not be master, literally a ruling king over you. You're not under the law as slaves. You're under grace. That's God's favor and mercy. And the New Living says it this way. Sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. So let's take a moment and review, kind of like what we looked at three weeks ago. <clears throat> so he says, slide four. Sin shall not be master over you. Now that Greek word there is kurieo. The, the, the idea in the Greek means that it means to rule. Here again, Paul is presenting sin, or he's revealing sin as this ruling power. And all of us who have come to a saving faith in Christ, who are born again believers in Christ, we all realize that for us to stop engaging in sins can all too often become a daunting task. Amen? We can never do this by our own power, church. But he also reminds us of who we were, that's in the Irish tense in the Greek, who we were and what we have become. Look aside five. So we are dead to sin and we are alive to God. That's important, church. We're dead to sin and alive to God. And, and, and more importantly, we, we, we have this new identity. You see, you've taken his name upon yourself. How do you treat his name? Think about it. Hopefully not as a profanic word, but how do you treat his name? You see, we have been raised up to this new life with him through faith in the working of the Father who raised Christ from the dead. Now, for the Christian, there has already taken place, as I said last time, this change of lordship. Think about it. Who is lord over your life? You see, God is not too upset with you having things, but he's kind of upset when he sees that you have things having you. Amen? Well, it got quiet already, Dr. Carter. 
So it's, it's, amen, it's because of this new lordship that we as believers can go forth constantly and we can now wage war against sin. We, we've been given this, this power to walk in a new way of life. Our life has this fresh new quality to it. He says, sin shall not be master over you. I want to bring out one other point, slide six. Paul, in writing in 1 Corinthians 6, says this. He says, listen, you Corinthians, you've already been bought. You've been purchased and made his own with a price. So therefore, glorify God in your body. See, sin does not have to rule as master or over your way of life anymore. Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead, as I've taught you many times before, is the same power given to each of you to walk in a new way of life. See, your life has a purpose. And that purpose is to bring glory to the Father. So, therefore, we are to be dead to our former way of living. Slide 7. Can this be said about us this morning? Ask yourself, are you dead to your former way of life. He says, you're not under the law, you're under grace. Now, if you remember that word law, that's the Greek word there is, you can see it up on the slide, it's the word namas. Paul's referring to that Mosaic law, church. So, it will be necessary for you and I to understand what the law can and what the law cannot do so that we understand what Paul means when he says, we're under grace. This is important, so hang on. Are we still giving sin lordship in our life? Think about that. Are we still giving sin lordship in our life? Because we're to be dead to our former way of life. So let's review. Look at slide 8. First, the law. The law commands and the law demands. It gives approval and blessing when it's obeyed or conformed to. Second, it pronounces condemnation when it's broken. Anybody ever been in a court of law and they've been convicted? It pronounces condemnation when it's broken. So the curse becomes effective only when the law is violated. Well, what do you have to say to that, Pastor Jack? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at slide 9. Paul writing to the church in Galatia. <clears throat> what does he say? For as many as are the works of the law, meaning those who depend on the law to be made right with God by trying to keep the law are actually under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. I like how the NLT also puts it. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scripture says, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all of the commands that are written in God's book of the law. Third, slide 11. What else does the law do? It exposes and convicts a person of sin. Paul says in Romans 7, 9, I, once, I was once alive apart or before the conscience awoke and moral responsibility came from the law. But when the commandment came in, the enemy that seeks our ruin and destruction and takes all occasions to affect our life became alive. I died. Slide 12. At one time I lived without understanding the law. 
But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life. So I hope that we understand from the scriptures that the law can never make a person right who has violated it. It cannot relieve us from the bondage of sin. It actually confirms the bondage of sin. So now we need to carefully look at this verse, church. Remember, Paul, who's writing this, he was a very zealous Pharisee. He sat at the feet of the famous Gamaliel. He knew the law inside out. He was the ultimate attorney when it came to the Word of God. He was a teacher of the law, so he knew that law. He knew it inside out. So then we have to say, okay, well, Paul, what did you mean when you were saying, I was once alive apart from the law? What are you talking about, Paul? See, Paul was speaking of his life prior to his salvation. See, even though he was an expert at the law, the law was not doing the work within him. The law was not making him right with God. He did not even think of himself as a sinner prior to being saved. He was physically alive, but he was spiritually dead in the sins and trespasses. So he wants his readers to know that there was, there was this no conviction in his own heart. There was no enlightenment in his own heart, church. And this is the condition of so many who will come to church week after week, month after month, year after year. Think about it, church. They come to church every week, every month, every year. They hear the word of God taught to them. They hear the eugalion, the gospel, shared with them. But yet they leave here and there's no change in their lives. That's chilling, isn't it? To most of them, the Bible is nothing more than this dead old dare, this bare book. There's no conviction in their hearts regarding sin. Look at slide 13. Here, here's the questions that make us uncomfortable. Does that describe any of us this morning? Think about it. Is the Bible nothing more than this dead book? Is there no conviction in our heart when we sin and we grieve the Holy Spirit? Paul says, slide 14, when the commandment came in, sin became alive and I died. What does he mean here? See, when a true understanding of the commandment came in, Paul began to see himself as he really was. He began to see just how short he came of the law's righteous standards. And that's all of us, church. He, became, he came to realize that he could not keep the law perfectly himself. So he says sin became alive, meaning Paul had come to realize his true condition. He came to realize just how sinful he really was. Slide 14. Do we all this morning, listen to me, do we understand our true condition without Jesus Christ? That's the important question. Do we understand our true condition? Do we realize that there is nothing we can do on our own to make ourselves right with God? Paul had completely became completely conscious of his sinful condition. And church, it should be clear to all of us that the law can never make a person right who is violated. You know, we look at the Ten Commandments and we break them down. They were never written as ten separate commandments that way. I know the movie tries to help us with that. But, you know, if you take the Lord's name in vain, you're also an adulterer, you're a murderer, 
you're a blasphemer, all of that. You see, if you break one part of the law, you've broken all the law. All of us are under the bondage of sin without Christ, church. And the law cannot relieve us from the bondage of sin. In fact, it confirms the bondage of sin. So then back in verse 14, what did Paul mean when he says to be under grace? Do you guys remember that Greek word charis? I know you're all theologians now. Grace means what? Unmerited favor, right? <clears throat> grace means that you're showing kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it at all. Think about it. Grace means that I'm showing kindness to someone that doesn't even deserve it. It's completely unmerited, meaning there's no reason to show it. So what is Paul trying to get across when he says we're under grace? He wants all of us to know that there is absolutely nothing in any of us to deserve this free gift of salvation. Never forget that. We don't deserve that. It's something that we received freely. We can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't strap, you know, do some backroom bargain for it. And if you're born again Christian, if you've come to a saving faith in Christ, you've been set free from the law which could never save you in the first place. And it was never meant to be a means of salvation. You are made right only one way, and that is by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Absolutely no other way. We call that justification, slide 15. Being justified, you all remember this. You are declared right with God the very moment you come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> you are made right positionally with the Father only one way, and that's through the Son, Jesus Christ. So, then you are no longer condemned by the law. You've been acquitted because of what Jesus did for you when all of your sin was placed on Him and he paid that sin debt in full for you on the cross. Remember, every filthy, rotten thing I've ever done, you ever did, was now placed on Christ. And his perfect life of obedience, righteousness, that's now been credited to you. That's the only way we are saved. So we're, never, we're no longer condemned by the law. The curse has been lifted. Remember Romans 6, back in the early part of it, <clears throat> we were united with him in his death and his resurrection. His death became your death. So, church, grace then is God's riches at what? Christ's expense. Look at verse 16. What then? Shall we sin? Shall we continue in sin? Because we're no longer under the law, but under grace? God forbid, church. I'm hoping by now that we have a better understanding of what sin is. Hear me this morning. You know, back when I started this, we looked at some 17 different working definitions of sin throughout the scriptures, throughout the 66 canonical books of the Bible. And sin is never a popular subject to preach on. We're not a kumbaya church. We preach the whole counsel of God. So the Bible reveals sin. It reveals the effects of sin in many ways. I want you to think about it. Sin is defiling, church. It is a pollution of the soul. Sin is like corrosion on metal. It's been compared to as the venom of a snake, the deadly poison of a cobra. Sin is high-handed, active rebellion against God. 
<clears throat> sin is ungratefulness towards God. Sin is refusing to acknowledge God as a source of every good thing in your life. Sin can dominate our minds. I want you to look at slides 17 through 19 with me. I want you to, I want to read what Steve Lawson, probably one of the greatest theologians of our day, says about this. <clears throat> Dr. Lawson says this, Every aspect of man's inner being, his mind, will, and emotions have been corrupted by sin. That's the truth. Defiant living. The unregenerate, meaning the person who was not born again, the person who is, has that unsaved life, lives an ungodly life by suppressing God's truth in a constant state of overt rebellion against Him. That was the Romans 1.18. For although they knew God, they did not acknowledge Him as God, but they became futile or foolish in their understanding. And the, the Greek word there is kateko. They didn't want to hear the truth. They wanted to keep forcing it back. If you remember chapter eight, uh, 118 through I think 30, there was this pushing back, pushing back. We don't want your truth, God. So fallen man will always choose his sin over God's truth. We see that, unfortunately, today in the homosexual movement. People think, well, God loves me. That's all right. I can sleep with somebody of the same sex. But that's not what the Bible says. That is not what the Bible says. Either the Bible is our final authority or the way we feel is the final authority. We need to choose the Bible because that is the final authority. Darkened thoughts, skatas. The unregenerate or unsaved exchange the truth of the glory of God for vanity, darkening their thoughts. Let's face it, we've all had dark thoughts. They reject the knowledge of God and thereby plunge themselves into mental dullness, emotional despair, and spiritual depravity. And don't you see that going on today? Come on, don't we see it? How about defiled bodies? The unsaved pursue the desires of their wicked hearts. When men refuse and reject the knowledge of God, God eventually gives them over to their sinful pleasures to do those things which are unseemingly. That's tough. Because we're told we should be accepting of all that. And then a debased mind, slide 20 and 21. In this downward spiral, the sinner finally hits rock bottom. His conscience is insensitive to any moral restraint. That is a very deadly, dangerous place to be. He no longer feels the conviction of a guilty conscience. I use the analogy many times of a stove. If I have a stove up here and I put the burner on full blast and I grab your hand and I put it over it, immediately you're going to pull it back. But if I start cutting off the nerves, eventually your hand can be consumed by the fire and you feel nothing. That is not a place you want to be at. And then a deadened heart. The unbeliever's heart is stubborn and resistant towards God's truth. It refuses to repent and receive the good news of salvation in Christ. Remember what Paul taught us in slide 22, back in Romans 1.21? Yes, they knew God. <clears throat> but they, they knew Him. That there was a clear knowledge of Him. The Greek word is epinosis. They knew God. But they would not worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. 
They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. If you want to get rid of confusion, open up the scriptures and start reading the word of God. I promise you, God will never leave you. He'll never desert you. He'll never forsake you. And the Holy Spirit will never work independently from the Word. You open up those scriptures and you start getting into the Word of God and you start saying, God, how does this apply to my life? What do I need to do here? And God will not return void. And then slide 23 and 24. Sin dominates our affections. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. And here's how the NLT puts it. Judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world. But people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light, refuse to go near it, for their fear their sins will be exposed. It's amazing how all of the evil and dark things a lot of times are in seedy darkness at night. They, they want to hide that. Hear me this morning. Sin promises satisfaction. It makes a promise. But it always ends up delivering misery. Amen? Sin will whisper into your ear the promise of freedom. You can have all the pleasures and anything you want. But in reality, it ends up only delivering slavery, destroyed lives, Destroy relationships. Isn't that what the heroin and the crack and the fentanyl is doing? It promises freedom. You can get high, snort your coke, do your couple lines, do all that stuff. But what ends up happening? It captures you. And the next thing you know, your life is destroyed. But sin not only destroys your life, it destroys all the lives of the people around you. It promises freedom, but it enslaves you. It rewards you with frustration and pain and hopelessness and sin damns the unsaved soul to hell. <clears throat> so here, now Paul asked the question in verse 15. Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Church, hear me this morning. The very purpose of God's grace is to free a man or a woman from sin. God's grace not only makes you and I right with the Father, it does something else. It transforms our lives. Look at slide 25. Here's a question. If you're truly born again, are you living that transformed life? Are, are, are you living differently than you used to live before you claim you got saved? Or are you still practicing the same things you used to practice before you claim you got saved now? And if you are, you're most likely not saved. See, Paul... Church, Paul sees grace not as just this liberating power, but he also sees it as a constraining power as well. The constraint is that of a willing and obedient heart on our part. This obedience is a result of having a new heart, new mind. See, God takes that heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh, pliable. And if you're born again, truly born again, you're, you're now sensing this leading of God, the Holy Spirit. Do you sense the leading of the Holy Spirit, the Hagias Numa, the Ruach Hagesh in your life? But, but we need to understand that just because we're no longer on the law, it, 
It does not mean that I have a license to sin and get away with it. Oh, God will forgive me. See, the grace that we receive from Jesus was designed to bring about you and I living a righteous life. When people see you, do they see God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling you? Do they see Christ in you, the hope of glory? Let's also keep in mind that there's some really good and practical uses of the law that you and I need to be mindful of. Look at slide 26 to 28. First, the law reveals to you and I the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and our own sinful shortcomings, church that should be driving us to Jesus and our need for salvation through him. There's no other way into heaven except through Christ. Romans 3.20 Because by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified, literally be made righteous, acquitted, and judged acceptable in his sight. So by the works of the law, you will, uh, the, because of the works of the law, no flesh, no human being, is going to be made righteous, acquitted, or judged acceptable in his sight. Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The NLT, slide 28, says, For no one can be made with God, right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Slide 29. Second function of the law is for civil use. The clear standards revealed to you and I in the Old Testament law restrain evil through threats of punishment. But we must also understand the law can never change a person's heart. It's not intended to do that. Well, where does it say that? I'm glad you asked again. Romans 13.1, right? Let every person or every soul be in subjection to the governed authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Or, the NLT, slide 31, Everyone must submit to the governed authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. That's tough, isn't it? Especially in this day and age. That's tough. But listen, either God is right, or we're right. We better choose God. And then Romans 13.3, slide 32 and 33. For rulers are not the cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they're going to honor you. And then the third function law, 34 and 35, these moral standards of the law give each of us guidance as we seek to live in humble gratitude that the grace of God has shown us. So, obeying God's commands, church, flows from a heart that is thankful to Him for saving us. Are you thankful for that? <clears throat> and then I like, uh, look at slide 35, 36. Therefore, the law has now become, now look at the text, the law has now become our tutor to lead you and I to Christ, right? Is that what it says? The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that, slide 35, so that we may be justified or made right by faith. It doesn't say works. It says, by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So here's the question. What did Paul mean when he used the word tutor? Now we have our 21st understanding of the word tutor. But what was the function of a tutor back in Paul's day? You see, I don't want to eisegete. I don't want to read my 21st century thinking and trying to make the Bible fit it. I want to go back into the scripture and say, what was he trying to get across to the audience of that day? How do I draw it out and apply it to my life today? Well, that word tutor is an interesting Greek word. You see, a tutor back in Paul's day was a servant whose office it was to take children to school. Bahi dagagas. A servant whose office it was, it was an office, to take kids to school, church. And I like how the great Greek theologian A.T. Robertson unpacks this for us from the original language. He says, the pedagogue or tutor or schoolmaster watched his behavior at home and attended him when he went away from home as to school. Christ is now our schoolmaster and the law as the tutor to kept watch over us till we came to Christ. Think about that. Let that sink in for a minute. That's very interesting, isn't it? So the tutor's job was to watch over the kids at home, attend to them when they went away from home, and school. So he was with them constantly. Let me say it again. Did you catch that? He was with them constantly. Now think about that. Christ, the Holy Spirit, is with us constantly. Amen? Isn't he? So the verse then says, so that we may be justified by faith. This is the ultimate purpose of the law as a tutor. Then he finishes with, now that faith has come, slide 38, we no longer are under a tutor. The pedagogue has been dismissed. We are in the school of the master. Amen? Isn't that exciting? Church, do we now see that Christ died to make us different? Do we now see that he gave grace to change us, to teach us? Look at slide 38 and 39. For the grace of God has appeared. By the way, that's that word appeared is where we get our English word epiphany from. Think about it. The grace of God has appeared. Right? Think about it. The epiphany. Over and upon, to shine upon, it's appeared. To show oneself. Bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness. Or training us up to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. To live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, do we see that text there? Does everybody see that? The grace of God has appeared. There's that epiphany. It appeared to do what? To bring salvation to who? To all men. It also had another function for grace. Look at your antecedent. I know you all remember your English. Instructing us or training us up to do something. So the grace of God has appeared. It's wrong salvation. It's training us up to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly desires, 
to live sensibly, to live righteously and godly in this present age. And here's how the NLT puts it. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. We are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. Are we, are we still pampering those sinful pleasures in our life? Oh, I got quiet again, Dr. Carter. Preach. It says we should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. And then Romans 16. Let me have a couple more minutes. I only have about 28 pages to go. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as a slave, as a doulos for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? This either results in sin, which results in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness. And he's asking you that question. He's saying to this little church in Rome that's not much bigger than ours, he says, guys, don't you know that when you're presenting yourself to someone for, as a slave for obedience, you're a slave of that person that you obey. Either of sin, which is going to result in your death, or obedience, which is going to result in your righteousness. The NLT, slide 41, puts it this way. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which is going to lead you to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Says it very well, doesn't it? So let's tease this verse apart. Don't you know that when you present yourself to someone... So, okay, Paul, what do you mean by the word present? Slide 42. The Greek word means to stand beside. Now we need to understand something about the ancient world in Paul's day. <clears throat> you see... We're going to jump back 2,000, even 3,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, people back then would sell themselves in the slavery for the purpose of avoiding financial disaster. Today, in our 21st century, people become slaves to debt by selling themselves to the credit card companies. Oh, your credit score is real low, but we'll give you a loan at 38,000%, so that way you'll buy the car 16 times before you pay it off. But we're going to help you out because we care about you. Right? Oh, I got quiet again, Dr. Carter. So this word present, as Paul is using it here, has the idea of a willingness on the part of the person, but a willingness to do what? Notice there are the two different choices spoken of here in the text. He says, when you present yourself to someone as a slave for obedience, you're either a slave of the one you obey, either a sin resulting in death, that's number one, Number two, or obedience resulting in righteousness. You see, the point here is that all slaves, particularly voluntary ones, are bound to be obedient to their master, to the one they obey. Who are you obeying this morning? Ask yourself that. Am I still pampering and nurturing? Am I still taking money and financially supporting a sinful way of life, a sinful behavior? Is that what I'm doing? And then I'm trying to excuse it away and justify it. I would love to spend an hour and teach you about the limbic system of your brain, but I don't have time. So then a person either yields himself as a slave to sin 
which results in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. What did Jesus say? Slide 43. We're almost done. <clears throat> now here's Jesus speaking. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is what? What's he say, church? Slave to sin. So let's, let's engage the text. Listen. The way you and I live out each day in reality proves who we are slaves to. Let me say that again. I want to make sure that that sinks in. See, the way you and I live out each day in reality proves who we are slaves to, proves who our master is. What are you giving your time, talent, and treasure to that's not God? The way we live proves who our master is. Listen, you do what you do because you think it's going to give you what you want. Let's be honest. If we live a life that is characterized by sin, it reveals we're slaves to sin. Slide 44. So, do we willingly live each day and choose to disobey God even though we already know what we're doing is wrong? Think with me. If your life and my life are characterized by our willing obedience to Christ, then it will reveal that we are slaves to Him. Living a habitually unrighteous, sinful life will never be and cannot be a Christian life. It's just not going to happen. And we've already learned in the previous chapter that a person is either in Adam or he's in Christ. In the unsaved, dead-in-your-sins life, the life of Adam, sin and death reign. But in Jesus Christ, the redeemed life, the saved life, the righteous and eternal life reign. All people are either slaves to sin, where sin masters them, or they are under the lordship of Christ where he is the master. Well, where does he teach that, Pastor Jack? Well, I'm glad you asked again. Slide 45. Matthew 6.24 No one, he doesn't say sometimes, no one can serve two masters. Now you think about it. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. It don't work that way. What does he say? This is Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Do you despise God's word and the church? Does the Bible become silent when you're in sin, wanting your own way, doing something that you know is evil and wrong? Ooh, still quiet, Dr. Carter. Mm. You cannot serve God and wealth. And the word master here is the word kurios. And, and as it's used here, it's actually referring to a slave owner. So we need to understand that a slave owner has total control over the slave. You see, for a slave, this isn't a part-time job. The slave is completely obligated to his master full-time. He is in the full-time service of his master. Who controls your wallet? Who controls your thought life? He con- who controls the things that you look at on TV or on your cell phone? Preach, brother. Think about it. 
The slave is completely obligated to his master full time. What has captured your heart or hijacked your heart? See, he's owned by his master and he's completely controlled by him. What do you spend most of your time doing when you're not working? The, they're, they're, the slave has nothing left for anyone else. This is why Jesus makes it clear that we can't serve two different types of masters and be loyal and faithful to both of them. How does that flesh out for you and I today? Let me wrap this up. You and I cannot claim that Christ is Lord if our allegiance is to anyone or anything else other than Christ. There it is. Let me say it again. <clears throat> we cannot claim that Jesus Christ is our Lord, our Master, our Kyrios, if our allegiance is to anyone or anything else other than Christ. If we clearly know and understand God's will for our lives and we resist, force back, fight against, and walking in obedience to Him, we are giving evidence that our loyalty is to something else other than Him. <clears throat> Slide 46. Calvin writes, Where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost authority. Hear me this morning as I finish up. The marching orders are diametrically opposed and they can never coexist. Christ commands us that we walk by faith and the other commands that we walk by sight. Oh, there it is. Do we have the faith in Christ even though we don't see the end, we trust Him? Or do we walk by sight? Well, Pastor Jack, it's not happening... It's not happening fast enough for me. God must not want me to have this. God must not want to. No, God may be protecting you because he doesn't want things having you. So Christ calls us to walk humbly with him while the other calls us to be prideful. So the Christian who has been set free from the bondage of sin by his union with Christ the Christian must recognize that if he or she is going to constantly yield to the temptations of sin, they end up becoming slaves of sin. Slavery is a living experience, not just a legal status. Let me say that again, slide 46. Slavery, church, is not just this living experience or just a legal status. All right, let me finish up with one more verse and then we're done. Slide 47, 48. Thanks be to God that though you were aorist tense, right? You were past tense. You used to be the slaves of sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Are you committed to spending time in the Word of God each day. Not watching 28,000 rerolls of NCIS or 17,000 things of Seinfeld or all of the other TV sitcoms. How many all Law and Orders and FBI's can you watch? Oh boy, I'm trampling on someone now. Uh-oh. I mean, think about it. The television ugh, gets 40 hours every week when you're not working. How much time does the Word of God get? Where's the allegiance? If you were on the outside and you were in a jury and you were watching somebody watching 40 hours of TV and then like like not even any time of the word of God, what would your what would your, you know, result be? What would you convict them of? What would you say that they're a slave to? 
I mean, I'm just calling the spade spade. That's what it is. The NLT says, Thank God you were once slave to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey the teaching which we've given you. Let me close. I want you to be thinking about where you are with the Lord this morning, every one of you. Now, I know this was many times I said it was hard to fit in the ears, my father in law says, but I'm going to say it again. If you were to drop dead today, ambulance came, they're hitting you with the paddles, shooting the stuff up your nose because of a fentanyl or heroin overdose, and they can't bring you back. You're dead. And now you are standing in front of the living God. And the living God looks you in the eye and says, why should I let you into heaven? I want you to be thinking about what your answer would be. If he was to play back the videotape of our life, how many hours would we be in front of the video games and TV versus being in the Word of God? Where's our allegiance? I'm just preaching what the text says. I didn't write it. I have to obey it equally as you. I am not better. Where does God take up residence in your life? So if you were to drop dead today, how would you end up in heaven? Repent and believe, church. Repent and believe. It's just, that's it. You can't buy your way in. You can't earn it. You can't do any of that stuff. You repent. Repent means that you, the word is homogaleo, or metanoia there, you say the same thing about sin that God says. You confess your sin. He already knows it. The confession's for your benefit, not his. And you transfer from trusting in your works or you think you're a good person and you take that trust and you transfer it and you place it on a person whose name is Jesus Christ. The one that went to the cross, had nails driven through his hands, punched in the face, beard ripped out, flesh shredded off his back, all of that. And you place your faith and trust that he paid for your sin in full. So when you wake up on that side, you end up in heaven. Not because you deserve it or earn it, but because of what Jesus accomplished for you. All you can do is place your faith. What does that mean? Trust in, rely on, and have confidence in what Christ has done for you on that cross of Calvary. There's one thing every human being on the planet Earth knows. Someday you're going to die. I don't care if you're an atheist or whatever. Someday you're going to die. And if everything that God has revealed in His Word is true, and you have not come to a saving faith in Him and Him alone, you're not going to make it. The thief on the cross, from what I could tell, he never attended Bible studies, didn't know the doctrines of Scripture. But you can see when you read through the text that he knew that he was a sinner. And he turned to the Lord and he says, Remember me when you go into paradise. He didn't, Jesus didn't say, well, you know, you've got to do 16 different things. You've got to do this, that. He says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He made it. He didn't make it because of works or earning it or buying it or striking deals. He made it because he placed his faith on the one that hung by him. The man on the middle cross that I could come. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray if there's anybody here today that has not completely surrendered their life to you, that now is the time that they would get right with you. Lord, would we see everything in the world just falling apart, Israel at war with Hamas, Ukraine, all the stuff, threats of nuclear war, all of the nonsense that's out there. Lord, it seems from your word the time is short. We don't know the day or the hour, 
But Lord, you wanted us to be prepared. So I pray for everyone here, Lord, that does not know you, those listening around the world right now, Lord, that they would come to a saving faith in who you are. And we say this in Jesus' name, amen.